Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Leuna says government funding negotiations to breathe new life into Hamilton's LRT are close to the finish line. We'll talk with Joe Mancinelli from Leuna about that. Now that most of the province has emerged from the stay-at-home order, experts say Ontario residents need realistic guidance on how to see friends and family. Dr. Peter Juni joins us with those details. And what do we do when our politicians are the ones spreading the COVID-19 misinformation on social media? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Is Hamilton's light rail transit project close to the finish line? Some uh, new revelations over the last uh, few hours about uh, what might be happening here with the negotiations, what is being described as a third party, because Hamilton City Council apparently doesn't have a whole lot to do with what's going on right now, but we're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. Joining us to talk about where we are with this project is uh, Joe Mancinelli. Joe, of course, is the Leuna International Vice President and Regional Manager of Central and Eastern Canada. Uh, Joseph, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about where we are here. What's the status of this project? I, from the, the the story we saw in the Spectator, and, and I, I read John Best's uh, column in the Bay Observer about this as well. We're not quite sure what's going on. The last we heard, of course, was uh, from uh, the the provincial government that said, "Well, the billion dollars is still on the table," but they said that's pretty much all there is to it. Where's the feds? Where's everyone else? What other money is available? Uh, you've been doing a lot of work on this. Where are we with this now, Joe? Well, we have. Uh successfully uh, talked to the federal government and the provincial government. And as recent as about a week and a half ago, um, the provincial government deemed the Hamilton LRT as one of six priority projects in the province. And we were very pleased um, to see that uh, because it is, you know, number one priority, uh, one part of the six, and uh, it's going to get done. So nice to see that the province has taken a very positive position. Um, they have put approximately $300 million into the project already. You know, expropriation costs mm-hmm. and, and a whole bunch of other costs associated with the LRT, plus their $1 billion for capital that they have committed. So the, the contribution from the province would be roughly around $1.3 uh, billion. And we've been talking with the feds, and the feds are prepared uh, speaking with Minister McKenna, Minister of Infrastructure, are prepared to put 1.3. In fact, uh, Minister McKenna said that you know she'd be willing to put even a little more than that, uh, but wants the province, of course, to match whatever she puts in as well. So if we are at 2.6 uh, billion, roughly, um, we are at about 900 million that needs to be injected by the private sector. So Leuna, for example, our pension plan would invest um, in the project and other private sector institutions would as well, expecting a a long-term return over a 30-year period, of course. Um, And so we're very close um, to the finish line. We just need to to establish a couple of things. One is if the private sector invests in this project, um, who is paying those life cycle costs, you know, the interest? Um, to the private sector because, you know, we don't put our money in there for nothing for 30 years. We need a return. And so who pays that? Is it the city? Is it the province? Um, So that needs to be determined. And there are uh, some discussions that are taking place at all levels of government uh, in order to figure out that important piece. 
once that's decided and we've got that nailed down, we're basically at the finish line at that point, and then we can proceed with procurement and, and you know, getting construction companies to bid on, on the actual uh, construction work. So we're, we're getting close, Bill. Um, you know, it's been a long haul. Uh, I wish it was a lot faster, but it is what it is. And at this point, I would have hoped that we would be talking about extending the LRT line to Dundas and extending it to the airport, uh, as opposed to still de- dealing with the original line. But, you know, as long as it gets done, um, you know, uh, we're quite pleased that all levels of government um, seem to be cooperating and, and moving this project forward. Okay, I just want to clear some stuff up here because there's a, a, a lot of speculation about what was going on based on some of the information that was in the media yesterday, Joe. Uh, we saw the city report, as you did, of course, a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, uh, that suggested that if there was no other money and it was only the provincial money, uh, that essentially gets you an LRT from McMaster to Dundurn Street, which is a non-starter. I think everybody agrees on that. But it, it, with what you've been doing and, and the people you've been talking to, you're doing with the with the vision that this is the, the, the whole thing. This is McMaster all the way to Eastgate Square, correct? Absolutely. Uh, there is no other way to build this LRT except from McMaster to uh, Stony Creek. In fact, uh, I would wish that it would go from, from Stony Creek to Dundas. That, that would have been the optimum route, um, but that would probably be, our estimates are an additional billion dollars to go to Dundas. So that can be a second or third phase. Uh, of the LRT. So what we're looking at right now at, at a, a three point whatever to be determined a billion dollar project would be definitely the entire length from from McMaster University all the way down to Stony Creek. Now, I know, as you mentioned, uh, you've, you've had discussions with Minister McKenna, the infrastructure minister, who, if, for listeners who don't know, is from Hamilton. I know she represents an Ottawa riding because that's where she lives and went to school, but uh, she's uh, from the west end of Hamilton originally. So she knows what if she speaks when she talks about the Hamilton projects, and I know that that's, that's a big asset for you. Uh, but in the past when she's yeah. talked about this, she's been very supportive of this in principle, Joe, uh, but they've been a little reticent to actually commit to a dollar figure to this. And and, and the, the line we always got from the minister was, well, as long as the the province matches the money well from what you're telling us today what the province is saying we've already put 1.3 in that that's our contribution uh so that you want the feds to match that 1.3 or more exactly and i think that uh minister mckenna has made it clear that she's prepared to fund the 1.3 um i i think the reason why uh, she's saying that you know there there could be a possibility of going to 1.4 is that it, if the provincial and federal contribution at 1.3 is 2.6, you know, getting to 2.8 makes the private sector contribution much less, which means that the interest payments over the next 30 years are less. So that's the kind of thinking that's going on uh, right now. And so it's just managing the financial packages where we're at right now. I think that both federal and provincial governments are, are prepared to fund you know, albeit uh, the federal is saying a little bit more than than the province, um, but like all all negotiations, I think that you know we're not at the finish line yet, and I'm not sure what the final numbers will be. Uh, we haven't given up on you know pushing the envelope to make sure that the contribution from the province and from the federal government are are as high as they could be. 
Uh, I think that there's a sentiment in Hamilton that, quite frankly, Hamilton is being treated a little shabbily, um, that, you know, we should be getting more money uh, for this LRT. And, you know, quite frankly, I agree with that sentiment. I think that, you know, uh, a lot of the GTA uh, projects, whether, you know, it be the the LRT in in Mississauga or the Ontario line or whatever, uh, seem to be getting uh, proportionately much greater uh, amounts of funding as opposed to Hamilton. And and I'm not sure why that is. And it seems like we're always getting shortchanged. And not only that, it seems like we have to fight like hell in order to get um, get what what we deserve to get. Um, so, yeah, it's frustrating. And I, and I, I sense a lot of frustration even out there with uh, the community as well. They want the, to get on with it. What's taking so long? Why is it, you know, taking uh, government so long to align themselves with this financing? Um, so I, I get it. I share their frustration, but it's a process. And, and it's a slow process, but it's a process. Joe, you've been going back and forth between these two levels. I know you've had some discussions with the Premier himself about this and with Minister McKenna. Uh, but are those two sides getting together? Are the province, to your knowledge, are the province and the feds actually at the table talking about this right now? I don't know if they are face-to-face uh, or, you know, on Zoom or whatever. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I know for a fact, though, uh, that our infrastructure arm, Fengate Capital, is, is basically uh, talking to both and, and, you know, talking to the province, talking to the feds and trying to manage the process, um, you know, to bring it to the finish line. So, look, at, I have complete confidence that both the feds and the province um, are going to align themselves and get this the financial package uh, finalized sooner rather than later. But, you know, uh, it, they have a lot on their plates. I mean, you know, this uh, pandemic has put a wrench into things, as you can imagine. I'm, you mm-hmm. know, folks can't negotiate or talk like they usually can. And doing everything on Zoom and electronically is not the best when you're talking about sensitive issues uh, like this uh, uh, light rail projects. So, yeah, things have been slowed down. And, of course, priorities are quite different. I mean, if you talk to the federal government, they'll, they'll tell you that their priorities are, um, you know, getting a, a, a decent budget out because, you know, we're underwater when it comes to the economy and getting vaccines. So the LRT isn't exactly really high on a priority list if you compare it to vaccinations and the economy right now, even though, in my opinion, the LRT is tied directly into the economy because it is uh, a very large economic play. And if we get this LRT going, it will have a huge economic impact uh, on the economy, not just in Hamilton, uh, but in many surrounding areas. So uh, I think that if they're looking for a shovel-ready uh, project, this is it, and it will stimulate the economy that is in desperate need of stimulus. Joe, i got to ask, maybe one of the most uncomfortable questions people are going to be asking here is, is the city's involvement in this. Uh, you've been involved with Leuna, of course, in some great projects downtown. Well, your office building, uh, for one, uh, of course, and, of course, the, the Leuna Station and the building you're doing right now at, at Houston and, and King and so many other projects around town. Uh, and I'll say it, I won't ask you to say it, uh, dealing with city council can be very tedious uh, when it comes to getting approvals and getting consensus and getting support for something like this. Uh, is, is it your idea right now to simply get the work done, do the, the heavy lifting on this, and simply go to council and say, here's what it is, the financing is in place, the governments are on side, because uh, they're eventually, I guess, ultimately going to have to give a yes or no to this, aren't they? Yes, 
uh, I, I think that that is a resounding yes. Um, you know, the 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 politics uh, at the city level it, it, under the LRT is pretty tough, as we know. It, you know there's a, a fairly significant split, uh, um, you know, with with regards to the LRT, and and so knowing that, you know, we chose to uh, negotiate with both provincial and federal governments prior to going to the city because, you know, I, I'm afraid, and this is just a fear, and I have no proof of this, but it's just a fear that, you know, if we get a lot of the city councillors that are against this project uh, involved, um, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll take a backseat and it'll start to regress. And we don't want that. We've made a lot of progress on, on this project, um, and, and, you know, we don't want uh, obstructionists involved. Having said that, the city has been very uh, responsive. Uh, to everything that we're doing, you know, sp- speaking with the mayor and others, um, you know, they've been very good. And on the other projects downtown, I have to tell you that the city's been super cooperative uh, with Leuna's development team. Um, and and uh, Hamilton is, is a, the place to invest right now. You know, with an LRT coming um, and the amount of construction and, and amount of uh, uh, affordable housing and condos and commercial properties that are going to be built along the line of the LRT, um, I think this is the place to be. And, and I think a, a lot of the folks at the city, including staff, know that, and they've been very cooperative and are preparing themselves for, for a flurry of development in the city. If there's a deal breaker, and I don't mean to, to cast aspersions on this because it sounds very encouraging what you're saying here, Joe, uh, it's the operating costs. And I know you touched on that briefly and discussions are ongoing with that. Uh, the estimates we've seen on that is about $40 million annually uh, for costs uh, related to that. Uh, you, you put that in the same sentence as uh, a number of city councillors who have said we're not going to spend one cent of taxpayers' money on this, which I think is unrealistic, by the way, but that's their statement none, nonetheless. Uh, so are the operating costs a possible deal breaker here? I mean, if, if that doesn't get settled and if the city is going to be saddled with that, I can see this thing, I'd use the bad pun here, to go off the rails pretty quickly. Yeah, there's no question that um, there's no appetite uh, to have our taxpayers absorb uh, all the costs associated uh, with maintaining and, and life cycle costs, you know, paying the interest uh, on uh, the project as well. So that is, you know, one of the, the uh, more important uh, issues that needs to be fixed. Um, the, the city does have a budget for maintaining transit. And there's an expectation that they're going to have to use some money to maintain the LRT, just like they maintain buses and just like they maintain everything else. So, uh, unfortunately, their budget, is, in my understanding, is somewhere around $8 million a year, uh, which is far short of the sure. $40 million that's required in life cycle costs. So uh, there has to be an injection of funds coming from other levels of government. And my understanding is that then in other municipalities, the provincial government has given um, uh, funding for uh, um, life cycle uh, uh, costs as well. So we're hoping that that'll happen here. But there's also other models that need to be explored. And I know that there's been other municipalities, whether it you know, be in Montreal or in Edmonton, where there's, they're building LRTs, where... The municipality has raised funds for um, those life cycle costs through development fees for 
the development along the LRT so that our taxpayers aren't paying for it, but all the development that's going to go on along the LRT could raise uh, an exceptional amount, exceptional amount of funds in order to cover the shortfall on operating and, uh, and interest costs. So there are several ways to approach this without going um, to the taxpayers, and, and, and that's exactly what we're proposing because we understand that, you know, the, the, there's no appetite to go to, to the public, to the community, and say we're raising your taxes in order to um, support this LRT. We get that, and that would be, as you say, uh, a deal breaker. So, um, you know, we're going to try to avoid that at all costs. Joe, uh, we got to leave it here for now. We're just about out of time on this particular segment. Thank you so much for the time today and uh, and the great work you're doing on this. I wish you good luck uh, trying to get all these things together. Sometimes like herding cats, but uh, well, I'm glad that somebody is <laughs> taking the initiative on this too. We'll talk again soon. Thanks again, Joe. Sounds great. Take care, Bill. You too, Joe Mancinelli, of course, uh, uh, International Laborers Union of uh, Vice President, and uh, the guy who's doing the heavy lifting right now to see to, if LRT can get done. And it, it's going to be rather interesting to see how he makes out, and just as importantly, how City Council receives this information when it finally comes before them. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the protocol for the pandemic, and we know it's been in place for quite some time, almost a year now, I suppose. It was middle of March of last year that we, we started with the first lockdown. And you know what we've been told, and you know it's almost like a mantra that we pre- wash your hands, social distance, wear the mask, all this sort of thing. Uh, I'm not so sure that we're as compliant as we were at one time. I, I'm getting a sense, just seeing some people's actions over the last little while, that they're kind of dropping the ball on a lot of this stuff. And, and maybe the one that seems to cause the most problem for some people, and I'm not quite sure why, is the social distancing aspect. And uh, maybe it's time that we have to reassess the, the protocol and maybe redirect uh, our energies, what, what we need to say to people and how we get them to, to be compliant so that we don't see this virus get out of control again. Uh, to join uh, the conversation, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Peter Juni, who is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto and uh, the director of the Ontario Science Advisory Table. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about the protocol here. And I, I, I know that you recorded on a piece that was done by the Canadian press uh, just a little while ago, uh, and they talked about this. And I, 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 my experience and what I've seen anecdotally, uh, Doctor, is the, the mask wearing, I think th- there's always going to be the anti-maskers, but, I mean, generally we seem to be compliant. It's the social distancing. It's the distance apart, and it's it, especially indoors that, that troubles me most. And we see more and more of that these days. Oh, my God. You know, what just happened uh, in, in Ottawa and in York the last few days made me nearly collapse. You know, it, it, <laughs> it's so bad currently. People um, really will need to go back to really be disciplined if they're inside. So that's, you know, that's why I brought this up when I was uh, talking to a Canadian press. Um, we just need to get people outside. If people are outside, they have more space. There's great ventilation. There's absolutely no problem if you keep your two meters distance. So distinguish between social distancing and physical distancing. We need the two meters distance if you're not with somebody, uh, you know, uh, in the bubble. But that's very easy to do outside. And people sh- just should avoid what just happened the last few days in big box stores and everywhere else. This is a recipe for failure. This is a recipe for disaster. We can't have that. 
Well, the indoor aspect is is problematic, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm even I'm even seeing it happening outdoors. And we, I, I we have a Costco just around the corner. From, obviously, I'm working from home, like a lot of other people have been doing. And the, when I go to get the gas station or go to the bank, and I see this lineup, and it's all the way down this, and they're not they're not six feet apart. I can tell you that right now. And and I guess they figure, well, I'm outside; it doesn't matter. And that's that's the wrong message, isn't it? Well, inside it's particularly problematic. Outside, we should not deviate from the from the two meters either. But you know, to be honest, if it's if it's one fifty and outside, but you at least have the one fifty, that's okay. Inside, what happens? You know, what what you see in some of these images, and it's apparently really an average. Uh, you know, this is not alarmistic. What is being uh, circulated on social media. That's just the part that we can't afford right now. Remember, we have the new variants of concern, and this is not a joke. These are uh, creeping up. You know, we see how they become more and more frequent. They are more transmissible. We haven't understood exactly what the mechanism is. And if people are not careful, we will end up in a third wave in another lockdown. Well, we saw that happen in the UK, and uh, we don't want to repeat that, obviously, because we've seen the impact that it had there. Uh, and that happened at the worst possible time, too. I mean, it was Christmas time. People are traveling. We're not supposed to travel, uh, but they're traveling anyway. I, I guess the phrase we've used for this now, Doctor, is, is you know, pandemic fatigue, that we're just tired of all this stuff. Uh, but when you let your guard down like that, you're, you're I guess, leaving everybody vulnerable, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a real problem, you know, and we don't have enough vaccines yet, and we haven't got enough needles in, in arms yet, and in the right people's arms yet, that this will uh, will help. So what we need to leverage now is, is that the weather is getting better, that we slowly make it out of winter, and this means let's go outside. That's the, That will be the message here. It's not that you can let the guard down outside completely, so no gathering, you know, in your backyard, 500 people, forget it. But what is possible is, you know, that you just go with your friends, go out for a walk in the park and you can still keep two meters distance and you can see people there. You know, if you handle it this way and enjoy the nature, enjoy the good weather, that's that's much of a different story. And we need to think about also, you know, from the side of the science table, how we can uh, promote this message. You know, insight is a real problem. And if people behave as if they just did the last five, seven, ten days, goodness, this will not have a good end. Well, which is why I was kind of befuddled when the government did their lockdown just around Christmas time there after Boxing Day, uh, when they, they closed the, the ski hills in, in the province of Ontario here. And, and, and I understand that you don't want contact, but I mean, they had been open for a couple of days. That's an outdoor activity. And, and there is a protocol they can put in place, which they've done now, uh, to keep people six feet apart on the ski lifts and, and even in the lines to the lifts and everything else. And it works. And I, I thought, boy, I'd, I'd rather have people outside in fresh air with their masks on, social distancing, than, as you say, crowded inside instead, where it's a it's like a Petri dish for, for the spread of the, of the virus. Uh, yeah, you're completely right with that. You know, when looking at that, what we just need to find is a pragmatic solution that allows people to, you know, have a little bit of normality, but this needs to happen outside. So I'd rather have, you know, a smallish increased risk outside somewhere on a ski hill than uh, the disaster that we just saw on uh, in uh, big box stores. Which is, uh, I guess, 
one of the things that we're looking forward to now. I mean, it is March. We know that the, the nicer weather is on its way eventually. And we've got history on our side here, too, don't we, Doctor? I mean, we saw last year uh, in the first wave, I mean, when we got into the nicer weather, March, April, and May, uh, there was a sharp reduction in the number of new cases. And that was because, as you say, we, we were outside more often. This is correct. The problem that we have now is that we're dealing with uh, with the new variants, and now we have you know different rules of the game because these are much more transmissible. So we can't expect you know that the weather will help us as much as last year or the going outside. Therefore, it's even more important to be careful. And this is essentially not what's happening right now. I, I'm not going to drag you into the politics of this, Doctor. I wouldn't do that to you. But, I mean, just we do have a methodology here. And, and you know, we've got this color code system. You know, you're green, you're gray, you're red, whatever the case might be. Uh, I don't know how confusing it is for the average person, but is, 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 it, is it the right approach? to? Because what you we all need to do in this situation is we have to bring people along. We have to get them to comply. You can't force them to because you can't be at every house you can't be at every every facility uh but you've got to have that 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 self-compliance that's going to go in there self-policing that's going to go in there how do you how do you get them to comply how do you faction or i guess develop that and, and the, the messaging to make sure that people a understand and b understand that it's the right thing to do and know that it's the right thing to do yeah, I think we need to think about perhaps a simple messaging. You know, the point is we didn't do too badly with this uh, framework. We need to be aware of that. If you look into the Western world, you know, Europe, the U.S., um, we actually did much better than nearly all the countries uh, out there, you know, except for Finland, Norway, and Iceland. And Iceland is an island, and Finland and Norway are somewhere in the corner in Europe. So, you know, considering everything, we did quite okay. But the problem really is everything we're doing is leaky, sort of. We start to talk about leaky lockdowns, you know, if people just go somewhere else. So, you know, we, we are still uh, here, you know, uh, with restrictions in Toronto, for example, and now people move up to York. This is really, really highly problematic. So what we now probably just need to think about is how do we make it through the next two to three months? Um, without having really high case numbers, which, which you know, could really happen now. And perhaps the, the simple messaging of enjoy yourselves outside and just don't let your guard down could be a message that could arrive more consistently in people's minds. Because I guess, you know, when they feel as if there's, there's no end in this and, and they're getting frustrated, uh, that's when you see some of this abhorrent behavior. I, you know, I, I think you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation uh, the incident at the mall up in Vaughan a couple of weeks ago uh, where they actually had to break up the, some of the crowds there. And it was, it was somewhat problematic. But I, I, I agree with your point, Doctor. How many of those people were actually from the GTA that just said, look, I can't take this anymore. I'm going up north where at least I can go shopping or try to go shopping anyway. Uh, how do you create those outlets to say, okay, let off a little bit of steam, you know, maybe loosen the bindings just a little bit so people can see that, okay, we can do this outside and, and, and be able to do this as long as you comply with those rules. Yeah, exactly. You know, if people start to compensate with shopping, it's never a good thing. But right now, it's actually really problematic. So let's focus more on outdoor activities would be my, my suggestion. And, you know, when I just saw all these challenges happening, just a few days ago, I really just uh, told our project manager that, yeah, we need to bring this back to the table and just, you know, find out, find ways to have clear messaging and just emphasize outside is okay, inside is a real challenge. We're right now, you know, we see the end of the minefields. 
But if we now run through this minefield and say, hooray, everything is fine, <laughs> this will really just backfire big time. And this is not just a theory. You know, we see this happening right now. We see these variants really just creeping up in numbers and, uh, and we don't have them under control. And if people are complacent and if people can't be bothered anymore, we will, we will really just be challenged just in a few weeks from now. Is, is it human psyche that, that we see, you know, like you say, on the other side of that minefield, we see the end of this? Because uh, the vaccine program is not rolling out the way that we wanted to. We're not going to get those shots in the arms uh, as quickly as we had hoped. Uh, it's, it's probably going to be into the fall, in September or so, before most of us actually get to roll up our sleeves. Uh, but it, it's even then, though, as, as you and other epidemiologists have told us, though, Doctor, uh, that doesn't mean the game's over. I mean, you know, the virus is still going to be there, and we're still going to have to be aware of it, and we still have to take some sort of precautions, aren't we? Yes, look, it will get better for sure. Uh, the, with the vaccine, I mean, the miracle with the vaccine happened that we, that, that, that uh, we as, a, as a community, scientific community, were able to deliver on the promise of vaccines that early, but you can't have miracles now if it comes to the distribution worldwide. So we need to be a little bit more patient. And even if it, if it went really quickly, look at the U.S., this is not over, indeed. So now we just need to make it. And the point is, since we're all social animals and since we all, you know, strive for, for sun, for light, for fresh air, etc., we just need to find solutions that work for people. But really, definitely, and I know I sound like a broken record, shopping sprees are not a solution here. Yeah, and we've seen that happen. I haven't had occasion to go into the store very often, maybe the pharmacy from time to time or something like that. But uh, I, I'm just getting the, the the feeling that a lot of people are just kind of saying, ah, we don't need to do this anymore. I mean, last year, if you recall, Doctor, the stores, you know, they had the arrows down the aisles, you can't go this way and this aisle, this, and you've got to stay six feet apart. And, and everybody, if there's somebody in the aisle, a lot of people just say, I'll wait until they're finished, and then I'll go down. Uh, now I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing people standing beside each other. They're going down the wrong, the wrong way on some of these things, just figuring out, ah, you know what, the worst is over. And and it, that's in spite of the fact that people like yourself and others are saying, look, at these variants are something to be concerned about. This is not just something to be dismissive and say, well, we got through it last year. We'll get through a third wave if we have. Uh, there, there can, there's going to be consequences if we don't, I guess, get back to the to the basics here. This is highly deceiving. You know, this is the calm before the storm, what we're seeing right now. And, and if we're not, if we're not aware of that, you know, it gets actually, it's what's coming is much more problematic than what we've seen before. That's the challenge we're talking about. And, you know, let's face it, this is a psychological phenomenon. We're all in denial, you know, and, and nearly everybody. We could do without these new variants of concern. But unfortunately, we can't change it. They're coming. They're already here. And we need to deal with it because otherwise this will get relatively problematic. And, and uh, the, the point now is, how do we get there? Well, you know, just, just acknowledging that we are these social animals, we just need to find new ways. But really, avoid just being inside with, uh, with other people who are not part of your bubble. It's a real challenge now. And we don't know yet, you know, whether the, the measures that we took during the first two waves, the way they worked, whether they're actually enough right now. So, again, you need to play safe. And playing safe means being outside in the nature.
Well, and maybe the best example of that, because I know a lot of people that are sports fans are saying, look, we want to get back and watch our, our teams play. And I can understand the frustration because I'm, I'm one of those people. But if you've looked at, uh, for instance, in professional sports, uh, where they have opened up the doors for fans to come back in, uh, in limited numbers, of course, it's the outdoor facilities. They're not doing it in hockey arenas or in basketball courts. It's not happening there because that indoor element is still problematic. And I, I guess that really underscores the message you're trying to give here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we also need to be careful if we then have mass gatherings outside in arenas, you know, with people just uh, standing 10 centimeters uh, within uh, each other's distance, etc. It won't work either. So we need to find good solutions there right now, avoid any gatherings of people and be outside. That's the point. If you really absolutely can't avoid to, uh, to go closer than two meters of somebody else outside, wear a mask. And that's that's basically the playbook we all need to follow. And then we need to find solution, you know, what can we do? There may be some team sports that actually will be okay to play, you know, for every one of us if we don't tackle, if we don't go too close and so on. Let's try to find new ways, but the new ways will need to happen outdoors. Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for this. It was a fascinating piece to read, and uh, I'm glad you had some time to come on and talk to our listeners about this. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Peter Juni, Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at uh, the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Had a lot of discussions about social media in the last little while. And, the well, in many people's minds, the misuse of social media and some of the misinformation that's going out there. And it's, it's problematic to begin with, but uh, even more problematic, I guess, when the elected officials uh, abuse social media uh, to their own end. Elizabeth Bra, who is a visiting fellow at AEI, explains how misinformation in social media has led us to situations, well, like the Capitol riot on January 6th. The situation we have now, we can see that news and we can share it, and there are no consequences if we share incorrect information. That's how we have arrived at the situation where we are now. But we have not just differing views, we have differing realities, which is why we saw the results at the Capitol on the 6th of January, where these people were convinced that they were right, that Trump had won the election, and we can say, oh, yeah, they were reading disinformation, listening to disinformation. Well, they were sure that they alone had the real truth. Valid points all, because uh, the reality here is there are consequences, not just to the individuals that are using this, but, of course, to society at large, uh, if uh, all of a sudden these, these uh, pieces of misinformation are acted upon. So what do we do? I mean, what are the options right now? Let's uh, bring Marcus Colgate into the conversation. Uh, Marcus Colgate is the director of the disinfowatch.org organization and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute for Center for either for the uh, Advancing Canadian Interests Abroad. Uh, Marcus, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Bill. This is we talk about our pandemic. We've got a pandemic going on on social media right now with misinformation uh, that was used very effectively by an awful lot of people. Donald Trump, obviously, was probably the quintessential example of that. Uh, and and the, the mantra seems to be at this point, Marcus, is uh, don't believe what you see, just believe what you read. That's what they want you to do anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, we've been looking at, uh, at least my organization, myself, I've been studying disinformation since about 2008. And and really, I mean, it's become a 24/7 job over the past couple of years. And with the with COVID, it's become um, it's become even more intense. Um, you see some, you know, these conspiracy theories just flying around left, right, and center. And, and as you mentioned, you have these elected officials like Donald Trump was doing, and and even here in Ontario, you have elected officials who are uh, lending legitimacy and credibility to some of these wacky. 
conspiracy theorists, wacky in the sense that most of us in the most of us who are living in the world of reality would think them wacky. But there is a significant number of people who actually believe them, you know, anti-vax uh, conspiracies, uh, anti-mask conspiracies and such. And what is happening when you have these elected officials uh, legitimize these, uh, these narratives is that you have an erosion of trust. You have an erosion of trust of people in media. Uh, you have an erosion of trust of the of citizens in elected officials and certainly our health officials, and that leads eventually to a, a breakdown of society. And um, and what we're seeing right now is is quite concerning uh, because it's like I said, it's not a fringe small number of people, but when you look at Facebook groups, these are there are groups with hundreds of thousands of members who are sharing this information, and it's only getting worse uh, day by day. So that's a. a- interesting twist on this too kind of an unintended consequence or maybe it is intended we become skeptical of everything we read as a result of, of the misinformation and say well who can i trust then yeah no uh, polling has been uh, presented uh, you know canadian polling um de- and that clearly demonstrates that canadians are very skeptical of uh of a lot of the news that they're seeing you know i think a, a, a large majority of canadians are getting their news from social media some of it unfortunate some of these canadians unfortunately are getting it exclusively from from social media and a lot of people are not trusting it and they're not trusting what they see and the, what much what's worse is that they're not trusting established media professional journalists um and and that's quite concerning if if we're turning away from uh from real journalism from trained journalists and uh shifting our uh, our media consumption to simply social media and anything that's produced there, um, I think that that's, that represents a real threat to uh, our society and our democracy. Well, there's a mindset that's at play here. And, and for those of us that remember the days before social media, back a few years, uh, when I started in this business, there was a trust factor involved there. In other words, you'd say, hey, I saw it in the paper, so it must be true. Now, that sounds awfully naive now. But because there was a process that had to happen, uh, there was fact checking yeah. that used to go on. Uh, if it was a letter to the editor, the, you know that was vetted to make sure that it was a legitimate person, and and if it was not, uh, you know, a legitimate mindset, you know, the, the thing was never even published. Because, in other words, there were controls. Uh, whether they were yeah. good or bad, we can argue. But we've taken that same mindset that I saw it in the paper, so it must be true, or I heard it on the radio, it must be true, uh, to to basically a media that has no controls. And and it, it's, it's a different ballgame altogether, but we don't seem to understand that or, or ignore it anyway. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, you know, and this is one thing that we've really uh, sort of failed at as, as a society in Canada is, is educating uh, Canadians as to how to safely consume media. You know, uh, my parents' generation, my own generation. I mean, I, I grew up uh, in an era of, of print and television and radio. Um, you know, and uh, and I think uh, especially boomer generation uh, Canadians, um, they're used to going to the newsstand. They're used to picking up a newspaper, maybe not the National Enquirer or one of these tabloids, but but certainly your daily newspapers and your magazines, your Time magazines, McLean's. Um, you you could trust those sources because there were uh, processes in place, editorial processes. And there were trained journalists that were writing them. And so you could you just trusted them. And you're right. They've transposed that same trust to a certain degree onto social media and anything else that they consume. Just because, you know, the headline is uh, pops up on your Facebook feed, it doesn't make it trustworthy. And so it's it's really critical that uh, the Canadian government, our provincial government, our local governments um, promote safe uh, media consumption habits with Canadians so that Canadians and these and it's not complicated. 
Um, it's just a matter of, of promoting this uh, habit that Canadians can use on a daily basis. So, you know, checking the source, uh, quickly checking the source of anything that they see, um, checking the, uh, the claims that are made in certain headlines. Um, and all of this can be done within a few seconds. Uh, and it, I think that it will create a much cleaner media environment as opposed to the, the infodemic, as we're, some of us are calling it, that we're going through right now. Well, and we're going to get into terminology, and I'm, I know what I'm going to say here is going to draw another pile of emails and, and tweets because I always get them when I say this. Because mm-hmm. uh, you, you use the phrase journalist. Uh, anybody who posts anything on social media now considers themselves a journalist, uh, and, and it's not the case. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, there's a, another word for it, that you're a contributor to the, the social media site, but there was a training period. There was a, a set of protocols that journalists and that even I as a broadcaster have to follow, and as we just said, there are no rules with what they're going on there, so it's a free-for-all, uh, and I, I suppose what makes it worse here and exacerbates all of these concerns is, is not only is it misinformation, uh, but with that platform that they have been given now uh they simply say you know what bill's saying uh and and what marcus is saying that's that's false news that's fake news that's not true and and their followers buy into that it's it's easy to be dismissive when you've got a platform like that yeah no and i get this all the time when i when i give uh you know talks on on disinformation there's always someone who says you know why should we believe the mainstream media alternate alternate media alternative media is, is just as important and it's true. I mean, a plurality of voices is it's important to have that and to have a fulsome uh, debate. But the problem is, is that where other you know, professionally trained journalists are trained to put aside biases and such, they still operate in the world of facts. And the problem is, is that a lot of these new platforms just don't care about facts. They are happy to promote fictions. Conspiracy theories that have that are based in in complete fantasy. There are no facts to back them up, and they are they are published onto onto uh, websites that seem like actual news sites, and then they are injected into social media, and that's where there's real confusion. And a lot of these platforms are you know fly by night sort of organizations that uh, produce revenue primarily through the number of clicks that they get, and so of course it's in their interest to downplay and degrade the status of actual journalists who work in facts um, so that uh, they can uh, generate revenue. Uh, and then there are, of course, the nefarious actors like state, uh, state-sponsored uh, actors that are, you know, perfor- uh, that are uh, supporting governments like those in Russia, uh, China, Iran, who are also interested in eroding trust in, in our traditional media because, again, we, you know, traditional media, real media, is based in facts. So this is a this is a very big problem, and um, you know, building up that trust again in mainstream media is really important. And we need to remind Canadians that um, you know all journalists have biases, but they are trained. Professional journalists are trained to put that bias aside and work simply on the facts. Is is part of the concern here, Marcus, that we have blurred that line between reporting and and editorializing? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been moving that way since, uh, you know, certainly the 1990s. I mean, Fox News was, uh, you know, a primary driver of that. And I think that the success of Fox News has been, you know, there are a lot of others who have looked at it and tried to replicate it. And uh, unfortunately, it's not just a, a problem that, that's, uh, you know, infecting the U.S. media environment, but it's, it's clearly become a, pro- a problem here in Canada as well. 
where you know the, in the old days again the old newspaper days i mean you know there was reporting 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 here's the city news here's the national news the international yeah. news oh the uh, the opinion pieces are in the editorial section here you know here's the editorial here are the letters to the editor it was it was separate and you compartmentalized and you could understand that uh one bleeds into the other right now and it's happening in broadcasting certainly uh and it's certainly happening in in print as well which i guess uh gives the people that want to you know use the the social media platforms to do this sort of thing uh free license to and base, basically i guess carte blanche to put whatever they want in there uh yeah. most of it is not factual a lot of it is just opinion but people read it as fact yeah right you're you're absolutely right and this is um you know what this does and what those sort of those who peddle these sorts of is exclusively in opinions they're feeding into the natural biases of of the viewers and it's uh especially now in this era of covid where there's so much confusion there's so much stress um, and the emotions are running so high. Those sorts of, of narratives where, you know, again, some opinions are, are credible. Some are, are quite frankly, completely, uh, have no credibility and are based primarily on emotion. They feed into those, those individuals who are seeking sort of validation for their own biases. And, um, and the real problem here is that, uh, the further along we move on the timescale, the more aggressive these these narratives become, and so you know you earlier you referenced uh, um, the the riots in in Washington. This is the the ultimate outcome is the polarization of our society, where uh, far the far right is pushed so far right, the far left so far left that we're warring with each other, and and the behavior that we saw in Washington becomes acceptable. Um, and and my. With my work over the past uh, years, the narratives that I'm seeing here in Canada, it's telling me that we're not that far off. We're, you know, we're seeing uh, on social media when it comes to this, the, the current uh, government and certainly how it's handled the pandemic, whether we're talking about the provincial government or the federal government, there are threats of violence. You know, there are these narratives on social media groups, anti-mask, anti-vax groups calling for our elected officials to get strung up in front of various uh, parliaments. Um, it's really dangerous, this stuff. Um, and it's something that we shouldn't be taking lightly as Canadians. And frankly, we need to be asking our, our political leaders to be taking a stand to, to defend uh, our democracy, our society, working together with civil society, and certainly with broadcasters like yourself, who are doing a huge service to uh, your listeners by exposing the problem and inviting people on to explain why this is dangerous. You know, this is what we need to be doing on a frequent basis. Um, you know, I don't think we'll ever get out of this infodemic, but um, if, as long as we keep doing this, at least we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make the information space and media space a little bit safer. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's talking about suppressing it, but I mean, there has no. to be some sense of controls. I mean, and, and to your point about the Canadian situation, I mean, Randy Hillier, the, the Maverick MPP, uh, from, uh, up in uh, the Atlantic Frantic Kingston area, uh, was just recently suspended from Twitter. This is the tweet that I guess puts them over the edge anyway. It says, we must start shaming those who wear masks as they shame others. The masks are coercing us to live their lie. I will not do it. Join me in a crusade of honesty, not their march to tyranny. And, and on and on it goes. And, and that's, I guess, really, Marcus, that's, that, that's a relatively mild uh, compared to some of the stuff I've seen on social media over the last little while. But invariably, those who own those platforms, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever the case might be, uh, they're not oblivious to this, but they seem very reticent to, to, to try to tighten these things up. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, you bring up, um, you know, Mr. Hillier in his comments. I mean, he's also a, a pandemic denier. He's saying that there, there's, there yeah. never was a pandemic. And this goes back to the question of, of legitimizing these conspiracy theories. This is what he's promoting. This is what he's legitimizing. And that is contributing, is a major contributor to that erosion of trust in our elected officials. This, you know, and he may be focusing on COVID, but really what this is, is an anti-authority, anti-government message that that uh, that someone like he and and the movement that he has joined that's that is what they're uh, they're promoting right now um in as far as you know uh, banning his twitter account uh this is you know a, a subject of, of pretty intense debate right now as to whether uh social media should be banning uh, these sorts of accounts you know we of course saw twitter ban uh, donald trump uh a few months ago uh these sorts of individuals who connect with these sorts of uh, conspiracy theory movements, they, if they're banned from uh, mainstream social media, they will move onto other platforms. Sure. We saw Parler emerge as a platform for the far far right. There are platforms on the far left for those that have been moved off of or deplatformed off of the mainstream platforms. So I'm not sure that censorship works and censorship also plays into their narratives because a major narrative with these same people is that the elite is trying to control uh, the media space, that the big tech is trying to control, control everything, government's trying to control everything. So when we censor them, it just feeds into their narratives. Um, so I'm not sure that censorship is the answer. You know, I like looking to Taiwan. Taiwan has done a really good job and is amongst the leaders in the world in defending against uh, disinformation. They, of course, live right beside China, which, uh, you know, attacks them with information on a daily basis. Um, they've taken measures to build a, a whole society response to working with civil society organizations, individuals, uh, to fact check disinformation and preserve freedom of expression. So, um, you know, not engaging in censorship. Um, you know, censorship is not an answer to this uh, to this problem that we have right now. It's it's the promotion of good, clean information. That's the answer. So, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, deplatforming uh, Mr. Hillier is, is the answer to this, but, you know, making sure that we promote uh, and and confront the narratives that he's promoting uh, actively, that's, that's the answer. Yeah, I was just about out of time. And, and Twitter does have, like, I think it's a five-step program here, a five-strike program. Yeah. Uh, and you get knocked out for 12 hours, uh, if, you know, all the way down to four strikes, and then it's a seven-day allowance. And if it's five, you're out. Uh, they boot yeah. you out like that, which I suppose it's, it seems like a rather flaccid approach to it, but it's still better than Facebook, where Mark Zuckerberg just said, look, we know it's false information, but we're going to put it out there and let the reader decide. Well, that's kind of defeating the whole idea, isn't it? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, one of the approaches that I've been advocating for is uh, – a national approach to this, whereby um, we would you know, work with these social media groups and regulate them if necessary, but to label those accounts and disinformation. I think Twitter is sort of working towards that, but as you mentioned, Facebook has, uh, has failed uh, rather miserably at, um, at uh, helping or working with us to address this problem. But I think labeling uh, disinformation is, is probably the best way of approaching this, and we do this, you know, with with regards to television and such. We have sure. uh, warnings about nudity and, and such. You know, disinformation, I would say, is is quite a bit more uh, uh, threatening and dangerous than than some nudity on television. But this is something that we need to start looking at. And and I would just add add to that that the federal government really isn't doing enough right now, and needs to be doing a heck of a lot more to address the uh, threat in a more serious fashion.
Absolutely. Great discussion, Marcus. Thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you. Let's uh, stay in touch, okay? Absolutely. Anytime, Bill. Take care. Marcus Kolga, of course, Director of DisinformationWatch.org. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.